The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and terrific to welcome my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a great discussion ahead. Elliot, over to you to kick us off. Great. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. So today, what I want to talk about, the topic I'll introduce, is the small cap opportunity, just how much small caps have been lagging by over the last few years and where things are going. I've got a couple, I think, pretty interesting stats. So year to date so far, we're recording this at the very end of April, small caps are lagging the S&P by 8.7%. Over the past year, that number is a little better. It's uh, lagging by 5.8%. But over the last five years, the small cap index, and all these numbers on small caps are as measured by the Russell 2000, it's lagging the S&P by 24.1%. It's one of the longest periods of underperformance, and it's one of the most extreme stretches of underperformance for small caps first bigs ever. The two largest stocks in the S&P today are 12.4% of the index. That's a higher degree of concentration than during the TMT bubble, and the highest level going back to at least 1980. It's in the 99.7th percentile ever. So this trend of big benefiting and small just wallowing is true even within the bigs. And then this has consequences for performance. So the rally so far this year in equity markets, 80% of the move is attributable to the top five largest stocks in the S&P 500. And just shy of 100% of the move is attributable to the top 10 stocks in the index. 105% of the move is attributable to the top 20 stocks in the index. So performance is always driven by the most extreme movers, but it just so happens that the biggest movers are the biggest stocks. And then from Jeffrey's had some really interesting stats. The top five names in the S&P 500 have three times the aggregate market cap of the Russell 2000. The small cap index in its aggregate is just 4% of the entire U.S. equity market capitalization. This only happened twice before. It happened very briefly for a couple weeks during the COVID crash in March of 2020. And it happened through much of the 1930s. So, you know, this is exceedingly rare. And some could say, you know, this is rate driven, but short-term rates are are high, but like the 10-year yield is not all that different than it was in 2018 when things were very different in the markets in general. Um, And then you could look at, I think, 
perhaps one of the causes, staples and big caps sucking the air out of the rest of the market. So Apple and Microsoft, the two biggest stocks in the S&P, have PEs over 25. They're 27 and 32, respectively. NVIDIA is, uh, you know, we don't even need to talk about their PE. Visa, J&J, Walmart, Procter Gamble, MasterCard, Coke, McDonald's all have PEs over 30. At a 30 PE, you're talking about an earnings yield of 3.3%. So considering all these are over, um, or Coke is is near, um, you know, they have an earnings yield that is less than the 10-year yield right now at 3.5%. Um, these are all like hyper-optimized companies. So where does the return above the 10-year come from? There's something going on here. And I think the headwinds in many respects for these companies are not all that different than what small caps are facing, though they do have more resiliency in critical areas. You know, Supply chain wonkiness, for one, I think is an important area. So further, this phenomenon of bigs beating smalls, of bigs destroying smalls and smalls having no incremental bid is a global, not just local phenomenon. The MSCI World Cap, uh, the World Small Cap Index is just north of a 10x PE in the last 20 plus years. This only happened uh, in the thick of the financial crisis. And according to work by Zania, investment management, when PEs are this low, the 10-year forward CAGRs for small caps are 10.8% uh, versus like an average of around 8%. So the setup, 10 years is a long time. You're looking at pretty good double-digit forward returns if the past is prologue for the future. Um, one of the questions I, I'll ask the panelists is how did we get here and what gets small caps out of this? So those are two questions, I guess, not one. But I uh, wanted to offer a couple of the things that I think have been driving this uh, in terms of how did we get here. There's just this trend towards indexation. And so you look at defaults in 401ks of 2040s and check the box allocations, robo-advisors, et cetera. They basically ignore small caps or give them a very de minimis uh, slug of the capital. So as more money moves to index products, small caps are kind of left uh, and cast aside. Then there's the institutionalization of investment management and the increasing scale of even the average hedge fund. Hedge funds, the big, have gotten bigger. And you know the small hedge funds have really not had incremental flows for several years. So there are a lot fewer players on the active side in the small cap space. Um, then you have years of underperformance in small caps. You know, I gave you the numbers above, but a lot of allocations are driven by looking backwards, saying, what have you done for me lately? And the numbers are not pretty. So people have taken money out of small caps. If you look at any of the big small cap funds, they've been losing a piece of their allocation lately. And then, you know, you could think about uh, some of the sector exposure. So financials and energy are definitely a bigger part of the small caps than they are elsewhere. Those are particularly downtrodden sectors sectors, though this is true everywhere. Um, margins and ROEs of really big tech companies are unique historically. So there's something definitely different with today's generation of really large companies versus prior generations, which in some ways have been more like balance sheet and, and, and returns driven. Today, it's really these like capital list companies. But, uh, you know, that's something that that might be the case, but it can't just continue in perpetuity. Um, you know, so so what gets small caps out of this? I've been talking with Mario Sabelli about this a lot. He's said there are rhymes to what happened in 1998 and in the wake of dot com. Um, some of the ideas that he's kicked around and some things that I've come across. I, I think, you know, some large companies have ended up becoming small caps over the last 
one and a half years since the peak of the COVID uh, euphoria in stock markets. Um, even some like 2021 vintage IPOs that started at what were mid or large cap valuations are now becoming small caps. Those get uh, some sort of regression to where they were before. And you look at better results for small caps. Um, M&A, M&A, I think, is a really big one. So companies just get too cheap and people start taking them out. And I think one of the things I've seen recently, one of the interesting consequences of M&A is that not only does the acquirer benefit, but let's say that acquired company, sorry, not only does the acquired company benefit, but let's say that acquired company was in the S&P 600. Whoever replaces them gets inter- incremental flows from the index that's uh, now going to lead to a pop in that stock. So I've seen that happen, incidentally. Um, and so M&A kind of gets... Uh, recycling of capital that that gets to flow back into uh, new pieces that haven't had a bid for whatever reason. Um, and then you also, I think, do have an increasing number of small cap companies that are unprofitable. And we had a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But a push toward rationality and profitability, um, that, that, that can only help. So I wanted to ask you guys, you know, what do you think is causing this? Is it rational that small caps have underperformed large caps by so much? Uh, are there reasons that this could change? What might catalyze a change uh, going forward? And do you do you feel like some of the similar thoughts about these trends? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I I appreciate the topic and the the homework here. Some of those numbers kind of blew my mind. So I would have guessed. Did did you say that the the small caps, so the Russell 2000 was 4% of the total U.S. market cap right now? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I, what is that? If I recall, historically, it was at least twice that, right? Like, or three yep. times that, right? Like 8 to 10 or 12%, right? Correct. Yeah. So that, I knew it was, I knew this existed, obviously. I didn't know it was quite that extreme. I knew that they'd obviously... You know the Nasdaq has outperformed this year. The large caps have outperformed this year. That's that was not surprising. And I knew there was quite a bit of underperformance. But the total lag you said over the last five years was twenty four percent total. Yeah, five percent, five or six percent over the last twelve months. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a big gap. I mean, I, I would equate it to lots of other things that have been going on in the last five or ten years, right? I mean, there's been all kinds of wacky, almost inexplicable things. I wouldn't quite put this in the same boat as all of those, right? I mean, I still think we're going to look back at the meme stock era, the SPAC boom, all the social media nonsense, uh, you know, basically everything that happened in 2021 is just the goofiest period of all time. And so this falls squarely in the middle of that and maybe somewhat related, but I think it fits into a bigger picture if you look at other gains and you know i use the concept of gains not just in the financial sense but it certainly includes that of of big winners in other areas right if you look at the biggest sports teams the biggest athletes on those sports teams the biggest hedge funds the biggest executives managing companies uh you know the biggest pieces of real estate the big have gotten bigger the rich have gotten richer and you know a lot has been written about that distribution of outcomes and gains and resources and whether or not that's fair or equitable or desirable and uh, i won't 
go into that debate just because it's complicated and nuanced and it's beyond the scope of this, I think. But I think there's something to be said along the same lines here, right? I mean, I think we've we have talked about the fact that a lot of the biggest companies that exist today are among some of the most impressive, just objectively impressive commercial enterprises of all time, right? So whereas in the past, maybe some of the large caps were tilted toward ExxonMobil or U.S. Steel or whatever and, and General Motors, no offense to any of those companies, but I would argue that Apple, Microsoft, Amazon are just flat out better businesses and better enterprises and deserve a higher valuation, both in an absolute sense and in a relative sense compared to the rest of the market. So I think that explains a significant chunk of it. I think another interesting component is, and I, I wonder about this, I don't have a strong opinion, um, but have the table stakes basically gone up for entry into the club, so to speak? Is there just a higher level of required scale to meet the burden of technological capability, IT functionality, compliance, regulation, all that fun stuff that comes along with being a company, regardless of what your service or product is? If that If those table stakes have gone up, it would make sense that the smaller end of the spectrum had suffered relative to the bigger end. And again, I throw that out there as a very loosely held hypothesis with no data or, or evidence behind it yet, but something that makes a little bit of intuitive sense for me and I think is at least worth considering. And you know, another thing that, that jumps out to me along these lines, because again, I don't know if this will, if it will mean revert basically, right? Because to your point, Elliot, it would, it would make sense that smaller companies can eventually become bigger companies and gigantic companies eventually have to die. There's no real way getting around that. So, you know, if the natural progression of things persists, which is that trees don't go to the don't grow to the sky and companies don't last forever and people don't live forever, that this would would reverse out to a degree because it just has to at some point, right? You you would expect there to be a little bit higher risk premium on smaller companies and you would expect some of those smaller companies to grow and outperform and become big companies. And if they do, you would expect this performance gap to either completely disappear or even reverse as it has historically, right? I think if you were to probably go back at least in the periods that ended 10 years ago or more, that small caps would have historically outperformed in the majority of those periods of time. So, um, but I wonder, I mean, another mean reverting series that just hasn't been mean reverting lately has been uh profitability margins and you know again a lot has been said and written about that and and why that may or may not be but um does it does it highlight a lack of competitiveness amongst peers does it hide, highlight a lack of resources or something which is hard to imagine given the amount of capital and and intellectual property and labor that's that's flowing around the economy around the economy and and bashing into each other every day. I I find that hard to believe, but the data are quite clear that you know corporate margins have been at a higher level and corporate returns on capital have been at a higher level in recent years than you would have otherwise expected them to be. Um, you know, I think a good case was made that margins and returns would have peaked at a level below where we are today. 10 or 20 years ago and notwithstanding the global financial crisis, notwithstanding COVID and all this kind of stuff. I mean, we've just had a, at least recently semi-permanent increase in those levels. So I wonder how that all relates to that as well. So that's where I get a little bit nervous, I guess, about declaring this a 1998 to 2002 kind of 
semi-sequel redux, so to speak. I There are an awful lot of parallels and history does often rhyme, but I don't know. I think there's enough differences that I would be hesitant to make that comparison too directly or too boldly. Yeah, I think in some ways, you know, your point on margins, that's a really powerful one. And it, it's something that I think about too. And it's intimately tied to just how great these um, today's crop of large cap companies are as businesses. So um, that's certainly something that is driving the differential, uh, the the relative performance and margins of the bigs for small caps is not necessarily all that far off from the relative performance of the two. So one could argue that it's margins alone that is the uh, catalyst behind this. And and that's yeah. highly concentrated in its own right. So that could explain the concentration and performance in the S&P. Um, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned sports and like the increasing returns to the most well-capitalized or most uh, prolific, um, where there's just this lack of mean reversion in areas where you'd otherwise expect it. Um, but then... You know, I, I think to add in a few other factors for why it may not be happening right now are a more hostile antitrust environment. So you look at Microsoft trying to buy Activision, which is not their core business historically. You'd expect something like that to be able to go through today, not so much. And you do need a bit of MA to kind of recycle that capital through the small cap space. Um and the big businesses are global and small caps are predominantly more domestic. So there are different forces there. But yet still, I find myself thinking, you know, valuations are really low in an absolute level where in small caps, in a lot of places, you could say, I'm just comfortable getting the return from today's free cash flow yield. And I don't need anything else to get me return. But when you look at some of these global multinationals like McDonald's at a 34 PE, well, damn, if you want a good return, if you want a return better than the 10-year treasury, um, you're going to need something more. And you know, it's not going to come from reaping more financial efficiencies. You know, Mario keeps emphasizing at this point, and I think he did a great job on the Bill Brewster's podcast talking about it, but these are like hyper-optimized companies. I've given the example of like, even within large caps, there are like these weird pockets where perceived safety, uh, more so than just better margins or anything else, have driven to outsized uh returns in recent times versus everything else. So you can even look at something like AutoZone, AutoZone versus Google. And I wrote about this in my Q4 letter, but like AutoZone's trading with a higher PE than Google today. So this isn't big versus small, but like, what is it about AutoZone that would lead one to give it a higher PE than Google? We know Google's not necessarily the most efficient organization that's embedded in PE. And I'd argue that actually should have it uh, trade at a premium to what is a hyper-efficient organization because there's room for rationa- rationality. So some of these arguments break down when you start looking even within the minutia of, of certain spaces where it's it's more uh, the perceived safety of some of these things than it is merely the, the uh, excess quality that you're getting. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I... I... I agree, by the way, that you can dive into the minutiae of all this stuff and find plenty of counterexamples. So, you know, it, it, if you've been around for more than five or eight years or whatever it's been, you remember a time when Microsoft and Apple, which you both, which you cited correctly, is the two largest stocks in the US right now. 
<laughs> we're trading at pretty cheap relative valuations and we're kind of left for dead as like, oh, I don't know about this whole iPhone, iCloud, you know, iterative model they're going to roll out and Steve Jobs just died and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, that, that worked out pretty well for them, but like they were in a different state of the world back then. Microsoft had kind of been left for dead for a while because they were still migrating to a, a cloud model and, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do with Office. So all, all this stuff is absolutely subject to change. I'm not trying to suggest that anything is written in stone or that these companies can or won't change because that's the one guarantee that we do have going forward. I, one other possible analogy I would draw would be that, you know, if you you asked how do small caps get out of this and my answer would be I don't know and that they may not because I think you could make a similar argument for small caps versus large caps in the U.S. as you could for U.S. stocks versus European stocks or Japanese stocks, right? So I think everyone would agree that there are certain advantages and disadvantages inherent in both categories and that there's probably some measure of outperformance that's that's warranted, right? I think the U.S. is, as an economy, outperformed the Japanese economy, largely because of demographics and other things, for example, that are a, a bit outside of individual companies' control, for sure. And so, but how much outperformance is too much outperformance, right? And so, you know, at some point, it does get a little crazy. And that's when you would expect some bargain hunters to step in and you'd expect things to start reverting back to normal. And I think, that, you know, no more stunning an example would be that Warren Buffett decided to take a trip all the way to Japan uh, to meet with various companies and to talk up his investments there and to declare that he was open for business for any Japanese companies that needed a capital partner, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, you know, to a certain extent, I'm 100% on board with the notion that small caps are probably a little bit relatively cheap as an asset class and that that's a good place to go looking. But I'm 100% without a doubt on board with this notion that you just have to be comfortable looking at the asset you own, comfortable with the cash flow and the economics that it produces and just let time work its magic because a lot of this stuff is just going to be outside of your control. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Okay. Oh, sorry. I was just uh, going to jump in real quick. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in the camp of, um, you know, small caps likely having their day in the sun again and uh, kind of closing this gap and, and outperforming. Um, you know, having McDonald's or similar companies at P's of 30 times, I think is just a reflection of the complacency of the ultra long bull market we've had, the um, COVID crash notwithstanding. So I think there's just a lot of inertia in the market that's built over time and that's benefited uh, large caps. Uh, Elliot, as you said, passive investing, I think also generally is is seen as uh, having benefited large caps and and that makes tremendous sense at the same time i'm not sure going forward that passive investing will benefit one or the other because you know it's easy to have passive products that target uh, the small cap space as part of a portfolio of products that a that a firm would have and um you know, given where the discrepancy is in valuations, um, you know, I could see passive small cap uh, vehicles getting, you know, marketed more going forward, perhaps. Um, I, I can see the argument that 
maybe it's due to some kind of a scale that's needed for keeping up with tech innovation. Uh, we'll have to see also what kind of happens with AI, um, certainly for any companies that want to kind of be leading edge in AI, they need to have resources to invest um, and that's going to benefit uh, the large caps. But at the same time, you have a lot of companies, uh, very successful, fast-growing companies that are enabling small businesses to compete. You know, companies like Shopify or a lot of cloud software uh, firms, I think, um, you know, a lot of them have, have it as their mission to basically... Uh, give the little guy uh, the same, um, you know, capabilities that the big guys have. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where I come out on that whole tech uh, side of things. And finally, I think, um, you know, just inherent in, in small businesses is that employees can be better incentivized. Incentives can be better aligned with those of shareholders uh, than at very large corporations. So, you know, I'm definitely fishing in the small space. Um, you know, the last point I would make is for anyone who runs a concentrated portfolio, I think these considerations, you know, large versus small and so forth, really um, take a backseat to the company-specific analysis. You know, there can be great buys in large and small, um, you know, undervalued companies in large and small, although you know, a lot of folks like to say, well, small small caps are underfollowed, they're more inefficient. And it may be true, but sometimes you get large caps that are inefficient. You know, if you just think of Facebook uh, a year ago yeah, or, or sure. even six months ago. So, yeah, that's kind of um, where I come out on this. I think the inefficiency is a huge part of it because I think it's just the nature of organizations to get bloated and inefficient as they grow. And to your point, yeah, I mean, look no further than the 27 on-site masseuses and massage therapists at Google that got laid off a couple of months ago, right? So I think that is actually how most businesses write their ticket down once they've climbed the mountaintop. And so I don't think that process is ever going to stop, you know, at the at the highest levels, I think that will always continue and you'll always have this kind of recycling of capital to use the phrase that Elliot used a minute ago, which I like, which kind of is required in multiple levels, right? It's required via M&A, it's required via bankruptcy, it's required via internal capital allocation. And I, I don't think that'll ever stop. I just don't know that I have a firm prediction about, okay, you know, will the Russell 2000 produce a higher total return than the S&P 500 over the next five years from this starting point, right? Like I would say probably, but maybe like 65-45 or 60-40, like it's a reasonably close bet to me. It's interesting you guys both mentioned the international stuff too, because I do think it's kind of the same argument. And I think it's notable that as we sit here today, you know, the international equity markets are actually outperforming the U.S. for the longest stretch in the last decade right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I got that stat right. Uh, I think it had been a decade straight where the U.S. had been just marching ahead of everyone else in the world. And it's not that different than the small cap trend. So the small cap performance gap has gotten more extreme as of late. And so, you know, a lot of the same forces have been explained to drive the same 
to to explain uh, have have been used to explain these phenomenon. Specifically, you know, the international uh, markets don't have the Amazons, the Googles, the Netflixes of the world, and the U.S. does. Like, why don't these other countries have these technological powerhouses that have exponential returns in perpetuity? Um, and that's like, oh, that's logical why the U.S. is underperforming. Even stuff like demographics, right? You know, I mean, I mean, you mentioned Japan having these demographic headwinds to growth. Well, the biggest Japan, uh, Japanese companies are actually, I think, by virtue of being an island nation, extremely global. Uh, and so yeah, Japan isn't even necessarily their biggest markets. Mm-hmm. And yet they've still just had valuations compress. And, you know, I think Japan has some unique explanations insofar as these companies have predominantly focused on making sure their employees are happy, not their shareholders. There's not the same culture of uh, shareholder value. And, you know, there are some interesting signs that that's changing. I think part of that started with having a second main index that's geared toward companies with higher return ratios. And so if you're going to agglomerate capital and hold on to a lot of excess cash, well, your returns are going to suck and you're probably not going to get in this index and you'll lose some investors. So that helps start changing things. Um, But maybe, I don't know, just maybe this international outperformance is a prelude to what can happen in the small cap space. And maybe it does have some of the same forces. I don't know. Just throwing that out there as a possibility. So would you say that you'd bet more than I would on the Russell 2000 outperforming the S&P over the next five years? It's funny. I sit here saying that. And, um, you know, I, I think some of my biggest positions are large caps. But right now, I absolutely have my biggest exposures to both small caps and international and there there's an overlap between the two like a lot of my international exposure is small cap so you know you can't say you can't add up the two as 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 a piece of my book but yeah i absolutely do think so i think you know maybe the most decimated asset class in the entire developed world are uk small caps you know much like i just said with japan they're an island nation right there are some really global small caps with excellent businesses that are in the UK small cap universe. And they've had one bad thing after another, starting with uh, the financial crisis and then Brexit. And, you know, COVID was, uh, the response wasn't as robust as it was in the US and shipping rates got really challenged. So I I do think, you know, uh, yeah. So to answer your question in in a succinct way, yes, I, I, I would bet. Uh, pretty handily on small cap outperformance, but I would make sure that I made my bet global, not just about uh, U.S. Yeah, it's interesting. Like if you had to, if you had to start a portfolio and you could only, you, you had to invest for at least five years, you couldn't make any subsequent additions, and you could only pick two or three or four index funds. Right? Would you put a lot more in the Russell 2000, the IWM over the SPY, and you know, any or both over more of the international index options that are out there. It's a, it's an interesting one, and I don't have to do that. Thankfully, I made that decision yep. explicitly, but it's an interesting one to think about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, one of those epics in time where you can, uh, you know, we talked about the, Phil, you mentioned it, I think, in a good way, like, or maybe it was, I don't remember, it might have been John, but like, we don't have to be subject to these constraints where like, oh, I'm just looking in small caps. Like, we're active investors, we can look to see where we find value. Um, But when you think about it, every once in a while, it's helpful to say like, top down, 
you know, where's the most beat up stuff in the world? Where, where should I be fishing for value? Um, what, what pond should I be fishing in? And I think that's one way to start saying like, okay, I should be turning over more rocks in these areas. Um, and that's kind of what I've been doing. You could run all, I, I, I had not used screeners for much of the last decade. And I've used a lot of screeners lately just to be like, build me some lists of interesting companies. What are some companies I should get to know? And you could focus on criterion that we all want to look for, like high returns, persistent growth. Uh, you could find ways to embed in your screen, like smart capital allocation. Um, you know, we talked about not too much asset growth and in, in our recent popular episode on Warren Buffett, like stuff like that. I, I think you could really isolate some interesting opportunities with having this top-down perspective. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, that's, a, that's a good way to go about it. I like the idea of using screens as a list generating tool to say these are companies that I'd like to get to know better. And, and that's how you often uncover great ideas. So I'm fully on board with that for sure. And then one other way I think is, you know, just look at a list of 2021's IPOs and look to see, I mean, this is something I've done a lot. Um, look to see which companies have actually delivered on their like financial objectives. You can't, you can't screen for this exactly. You, you really have to like look at a list of companies and kind of get in there, but look to see which companies have delivered on their objectives. I could almost guarantee you they're down as much of, as companies who have not delivered on their objectives. And, you know, I'm not saying anything about valuation here, but it's very possible that you might find some valuation gems in the rubble because I feel like I've found at least one so far that I'm just increasingly obsessed with. And, you know, there's a lot of baby out with bathwater. And I think that's one way to think about it, right? Those companies who didn't hit their objectives, well, sure, they should be down 80%. Those companies who did, maybe they too should be down 80%, but um, at least there's something that's going right there. And there's something interesting to look at insofar as, uh, you know, they came public at a time when, when uniformly, you'd be hard pressed to find a company who came public during the 2021 year that's not down handily since then. Yeah, it's funny because I was reading something this morning. It was in the Wall Street Journal uh, about it's kind of the upside down version of that thought. And I, I stand by what I said earlier, which is that anything that happened in 2021, it, it, it was just the craziest period. And I think we're going to continue to look back at that <laughs> year as just the apex of insanity. But you're right. I think it's a really interesting idea that if there was a good company that either for good reasons or bad decided to IPO in that mania and then has been swept up with the tide now going out that's a good way to look at it i will admit that i need to overcome what i would have as a pretty significant case of bias against pretty much any company again i i, I would just want to understand the story as to why qualitatively they chose to go public then because i would guess that in 97 or 98 cases out of 100 it was because the owner was selling into a market they knew to be frothy and ridiculous or we're trying to take advantage of something and look no further than this back boom, right? So anyway, this this article in the journal this morning looked at 12 companies that have already filed for bankruptcy after <laughs> after spacking in 2021. We're not even two years down. It's the only road 12. <laughs> it's only 12, but they they tagged more than a hundred more that are on death's doorstep that are trading for under one dollar a share and have a cash burn rate that, you know, if you just extrapolate means they have weeks or months to live. Uh, without a fresh infusion of capital. And there's just so much nonsense in here. Like 
Bird, the electric scooter company that at one point was valued at $2 billion in the VC world, and then you know, hitched up to the SPAC wagon and got revalued again at $2 billion and is now dead. Like, it's just, you know, it, there's just so many stupid companies that should have barely existed in the first place, let alone been valued at billions of dollars. And so, you know, if you're going to go sifting through that mess, you definitely have to be uh, at least skeptical, if not cynical, I would say. Yeah, so maybe list out. What are some good or bad reasons that you'd, you'd suspect a company could IPO? In that period. Yeah, I mean, bad reasons would be they were just trying to stuff the public markets, right? And I think that, you know, when the ducks quack feed them kind of mentality is pervasive. And I'm not saying it's evil or wrong or anything like that. I think it's just human nature. So if there really wasn't a good business reason for it, then I would suggest that is the most likely alternative explanation. And that would get me nervous (laughs) as an investor. Again, what would only matter though from this point forward would be all right are those people still in charge have the motivations changed is this actually a good business with a you know bad set of circumstances or a bad balance sheet or whatever and if so then i would i would absolutely be interested but you know i mean the the good reasons to go public you know never really change right you need access to capital you need access to the liquidity of the capital markets you've hit that stage in your in your growth profile where it just makes sense and so, you know, there, there's a handful of companies, I can think of at least a few that were considering an IPO in the years before COVID and then COVID hit. So they certainly weren't going to do it, you know, in the first half of 2020. And then as the capital markets just came roaring to life in 2021, you know, they, these directors and, and executives still have a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value. So they, you know, like I said, they're not doing anything wrong per se, but that doesn't mean you have to tag along as a outside minority investor. So, um, you know, and, and it, there were plenty of companies that needed to and should have and did tap the capital markets in 2020 to meet their own liquidity needs. And the bigger sin in that case would be all these CFOs. And there aren't a ton of them, but there are certainly some CEOs, CFOs, and boards that had a cash negative business that were burning cash and somehow didn't raise liquidity and didn't extend the maturity profile a meaningful amount. And now the game is up and interest rates have gone way up and the economy's weakened and they're really screwed. So, you know, it's a delicate balance for sure. Yeah, you know, the companies I'm most interested in that I've seen from that crop, and you raised a lot of good points on both sides, were those companies uh, who predominantly the sale was from the company itself to fill their cash coffers and not the insiders cashing out and whose businesses were reaching a point of maturity that naturally deserved to go public very well may have gone public like at the time COVID hit, but financial markets kind of ceased uh, for, for, you know, a couple of months and then did, you know, for better or worse into your euphoric times, but that's not so bad to raise a lot of cash and, kind of arm the company to go forward in in a different way than before. Right. Um, so yeah, no, I, I entirely agree with you. There were some heaps of, uh, you know, really bad stuff thrown on markets because they were willing to take literally anything, they being, uh, you know, investors in aggregate. And there were now, I think, some, some distinct babies thrown out with the bathwater. Though, it, you know, it takes some time to see results prove out. You can't just wait one year to see what happens. Uh, you have to wait some time. And some of these companies definitely uh, 
have a lot of hair on them in various ways. So that's not not the companies I like per se, uh, although one of them had some hair. Uh, those kinds of situations, um, you know, you got you to gotta be very careful around and, and dig in. The SPACs, I think, are a lot messier than just the ones who did traditional IPOs yeah, um, no, and, I, I and started forging. I, I have not found any SPAC remotely interesting yet. I think that's partly because in my sifting through those areas, for all the reasons we've discussed, I've kind of like, you know, view them with a bit of disdain and I don't really want to um, get caught up in that. I'd rather focus on some easier hurdles at the moment. Um, but a lot of these companies are now, you know, even some of the ones that went public as mid caps with like $5 billion valuations, well, you go down 80% and you're now a small cap. And so... Um, that's something that's interesting. And some of these companies were actually, you know, they, they IPO'd, um, uh, what's the name of those companies, uh, without having like, um, that, that, that act that led companies IPO, uh, um, blanking on emerging growth companies. They were emerging Uh growth companies, but now they're becoming, they're no longer able to use that exemption. So they're buttoning up even more. Um, so that's one thing to look at too, because, uh, only the better of them are, are past the emerging, uh, phase. Right. Um, no, that's true. Yeah. And, and yeah, look, I, I, to give you a counter example, I, there's, there's a company I'm looking at right now that I've been looking at for a while that, uh, someone brought to my attention and it's, a, I mean, on the good and bad side of the ledger, it's kind of a private equity retrade kind of thing like it was a carve out of a bigger company that was taken private by a of a it was a carve out of a public company that was taken private by private equity and then spacked ipo'd in 2020 so a little before the spac boom really peaked uh, but you know those are a lot of qualitative factors that i wouldn't necessarily go seeking but it seems like a pretty good company and management seems pretty reasonable and you know they they were tapping the market because the private equity owner obviously just needed liquidity because that's what private equity funds do. So I wouldn't necessarily put too negative a cloud over the company, you know, just so long as you come into it eyes wide open with how the company was probably managed and, and there may have been some window dressing, et cetera, et cetera. But it looks like now, you know, two and a half years after the the SPAC IPO that uh, things are settling in, the stock's about 10% below where it came. And, uh, you know, balance sheet's in decent shape. It's not great. There's a little bit of leverage on it, but the cash flow is real and business seems like it's doing well. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting one for me. I'm certainly not going to just throw it into the trash heap because of the the negatives. You want to sometimes go looking for the negatives when they're overdone, right? And this could be an example of one of those. And then, you know, you, as you were saying that, I was thinking of like an interesting two two high-level points. One is like part of the responsibility of prudent management is to kind of take funds when they're there easy. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. So the point about focusing on companies who sold shares as opposed to owners who sold shares, I think that's something worth thinking about. Mm-hmm. And then um, the second one is, you know, there are capital cycles in this stuff at work too. So part of what may have led to the underperformance in small caps was just the overabundance of new issuance in small cap land uh, during the 2020, 2021 period, you know, of the last five years, two of those years had massive new uh, issuance. And now you're starting to see bankruptcies, maybe a little whiff of m a in some areas like healthcare kind of started before others. Um, you've had just this dearth of IPOs the last couple of years. Um, 
I don't know when it begins. I think I saw a stat. I, I wish I had put these in my, my stat uh, barrage before, but I think it was basically as a uh, few IPOs um, in any year as there's been uh, in modern times. So the lack of issuance is something that kind of helps the capital cycle along. So you're getting a lot less supply to work with. So there could be a capital cycle explanation for why small caps underperformed and why that may turn from here. Isn't the lack of recent IPOs just reflecting that so many IPOs were pulled forward into 2020 and 2021, early 2022? Certainly possible, but I know of a couple IPOs that have been filed who are just like waiting for markets to get better and they just can't get out there. So, you know, there's some degree of that, but there, there have to be some companies, whether owned by private equity or uh, that have hit a certain point of maturity in their own growth that today would be the day and yet they can't get out for whatever reason yeah. or not for whatever reason, just because markets really aren't open to them at all. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's true, but I just, there, there were so many companies that would be going public in 2023 or 2024 that just said, screw it and, and fast forwarded by two or three years and did it while the you know, if the markets were wide open, that that has to be a chunk of it. And then, yeah, that's what happens, right? I mean, unfortunately, there's some that get left out in the cold because now would have been the right time for them to do it and they can't and or choose not to for good reason. And here we are. And that first crop, I mean, I think it's interesting to note that after the uh, ceasing of the IPO market following .com, PayPal and Netflix were two of the first companies to come public. Netflix was the very first. PayPal was mm. not long after. And those mm. were two of the kind of better ones. I think, yeah. you know, it's really interesting how having been in position to try to go public and miss the window forced both those companies to develop a degree of uh, professionalism and rationalization in their cost structure and their efforts that some of these other companies just didn't have to have when they went public in the euphoric days. And it's a lot easier to have made those adjustments while private than to get public than otherwise. So that's a really interesting point. And and that might be a really good way to go about it is you're hundred percent right that, you know, whether it's uh, the two companies you mentioned, I know Amazon has said things similar to that, you know, and they were already public when the bust happened. But if you look at either companies that survive the bust and then go public when the tide is still relatively low and conditions are still relatively tough, or if you look at uh, either, just like I said, either survivors or those now coming out, uh, that could be a really interesting first pass because you're right. I mean, that means by definition, they're surviving, they're doing, they're making the hard choices, they're doing what's necessary to to keep it going. That that could be a really interesting first first take on it, a screen of sorts. Yeah, yeah, but we need that window to open, right? We're we're yet to see exactly who will be some of the first companies uh, to come public. I know, like IAC's Carsum had filed for IPO for a while. They've like performed pretty well coming out of COVID. Um, are profitable and yet, you know, the market's just not there yet, though. Right. Uh, you know, thing the VIX is about as low as it's been in a long time. Uh, the NASDAQ's doing pretty well this year. Maybe, just maybe, that starts opening things up a little more. Right. Yeah. Although that It'll would counter my argument, my capital cycle argument for, for helping small caps. Uh, but at least it would be high quality supply instead of some of the uh, junk that we saw in, in the SPAC uh, boom. Yeah, that's what I mean. It, it, everything that 
could wasn't bolted to the ground was for sale in 2021 and you know the opposite is probably true now because nobody's going to go public if they can wait so if they can't wait there's a good reason why they should go public now that could be a lot more interesting yeah and to your point about pulling forward ipos there are definitely some companies i've spoken to some people about and they're like yeah that company was not mature enough to have come public they're way too far away from their opportunity playing out like you know Maybe you start seeing some of those companies go private again because they have so much cash as a portion of their enterprise value. Like enterprise values have gotten really compressed in some some spaces. Um, yeah. So that creates really interesting dynamics in its own right. So if you want a screening metric, screen for companies whose like EVs are a tiny portion of their market caps. I know of a couple that have hit like you know net net lands that are no at first it was biotechs but you know those are different beasts now there's some other kinds of companies that are at or flirting with being net nets and that's something uh you know i in my professional career i had not really seen yeah no that's fair and yeah you're right i i can think of at least a couple of examples already of companies that have uh been private equity owned and then IPO'd in in part and then already taken private again by the same sponsor. I can think of it as <laughs> two right now. And I think you'll probably see even more of those in the in the coming months. Yeah. So that's another thing to look for, right? Look for companies who have I I'd imagine those sponsors still kept some slice of ownership in the IPO. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they'd want to go back to the well with the same something they know already, something they still own part of and you know, the problem is, I think, it, yeah, in certain cases, though, they have to be careful about, you know, the board members recusing themselves and conducting a proper process and whatever, because if they IPO'd it at 14 and they're taking it private again, nine or 14 months later at six, you know, it's not great. Right? <laughs> uh, Weber, Weber must have been one of those. Weber's, <laughs> Weber is definitely one of the ones that I'm thinking about. And I think they did a great, or I shouldn't say I wasn't. I think they did from the outside what appears to be a reasonable job of managing that process and making sure that the the conflicts and concerns were addressed properly. So I'm by no means asserting there was anything. I just think that's what makes it somewhat more difficult, right? Because that's not ideal. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Uh, That was a little bit of a weird transaction, I guess, in that sense. They went public through a SPAC too, right? No, I think that was, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was a traditional uh, just IPO where the, the the existing owners just listed a chunk. I don't think they paired up with a SPAC, but I'll double You're check. right. It was Traeger that SPAC'd. Traeger, Traeger definitely SPAC'd. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Barbecue madness for a little bit during COVID. Well, that's, I, I, that's again, what's so funny, right? It's like, this was never a booming or sexy industry. And then all of a sudden by... June of 2020, every person on earth decided they needed a new grill because they were spending lots of time outdoors for obvious reasons. And so <laughs> the things just took off like crazy. And then, you know, uh, everything settled back down and it wasn't so great, you know, a matter of a few quarters later. And here we are. Yeah. To that point, I was asked by a friend recently, like, what are some of your biggest takeaways from the last few years? And one of them is like, how damn quickly everything went back to normal. Like everything that we thought would be different after COVID, it's like everything's basically the same. There yeah, are a few exceptions. And, yeah, I mean, I think the commercial real estate debate is going to be fascinating for years to come, business travel, all that kind of stuff. But I agree, like the one of the 
one of the few concrete lessons I can say about COVID is that you just had to be willing to adapt and change and change your mind every three to six months, it felt like, right? Because just there was no true north. There was nothing that you could really anchor to and say, this is what's going on. This is what's going to happen. And follow me for sure for the next two or three years. I know exactly what's going to happen because that was just <laughs> not that was just not reality. That's the truth. That's the truth. And it creates interesting consequences. Like at what point do you stop being so flexible and changing your mind because we are in a new new normal and the environment's just not as dynamic. Yeah, I again this is what fascinates me about this debate going back to your original question about small caps versus large caps is I just don't know. I you know, I would have less confidence than you do about even from this starting price, you know, let's say you you wanted to make a derivative style bet as to which index would outperform over the next 5 years, the Russell 2000 or the S&P 500. You know, what kind of odds would I want to bet on the Russell 2000? And yeah, boy, I don't know. I mean, like I said, it's it's pretty tough. And the reasons for that are hard to justify. They're hard to quantify because I think a lot of the evidence would support more confidence along the lines of what you said. But there's something nagging at me that, uh, you know, this just isn't quite the same. But if everyone knows something's better at a certain point, it becomes priced in. Right. For sure. At a certain yeah, point, yeah. it can't just yeah. be a source of excess return. That should get kind of eaten away by the market itself. It should. But again, I think that could take longer than five years. I think the returns could be, you know, let's say that it's neck and neck almost, right? Or let's say the S&P 500 outperforms by 50 basis points a year, or some relatively small figure. You know, that doesn't change the fact, right? That there's not going to be some 2001, 2002 style you know, whiplash, you know, big reversion back to to what, what had previously been the norm. And I think a related point that might be worth considering is uh, the correlation between the Russell 2000 and the S&P seems to have broken down since the middle of last year or so. Mm. And so yeah, that's could interesting. there... I haven't looked at that. Could there be a degree to which the correlation breaks down even further uh, and that these two become a bit more kind of independent-minded, if you will. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, I think, Elliot, the uh, the point on enterprise value and, and screening for that is a really interesting one, actually. I've been, I've been doing quite a bit of that because uh, I think it also makes kind of sense if you think about, um, you know, why those uh, IPOs or SPACs uh, were priced the way they were. It had nothing to do with the balance sheet. It was all about the story and the momentum and the growth. And so the investors that were in these names um, really don't look to the balance sheet to kind of... Uh, underpin the value uh, case. And uh, so I, I, I feel like those stocks have been sold off um, pretty much without regard for what their balance sheets look like. Now, if there are some really leveraged balance sheets or there's not much of a runway at all in terms of um, cash burn, uh, sure, those those have gotten sold off more. But to your point, Elliot, um, you know, the screen of uh, kind of Enterprise value is a very small portion of the market cap, meaning net cash being a very large portion of the market cap is super interesting, um, you know, because you'll find companies that 
have delivered or almost delivered on their performance targets, their operating performance targets. Um, and they've got these um, Fort Knox balance sheets now uh, with which they can pursue various opportunities. So to me, that's that's definitely a very interesting place to look. For sure. It is a kind of leverage in its own right when EV gets so compressed because like from an acquirer's perspective, in order to get someone to sell, man, you're going to pay a big premium because you're going to pay for the business value, not for the uh, cash on the balance sheet. Um, and suddenly you start seeing premiums of 100 plus uh, percent in, in those cases. It's happened in a few uh, biotech instances so far. And... Um, I don't see why it wouldn't happen in some of these other areas where where EVs are getting so compressed. And then, you know, from the acquirer's perspective, you're less uh, reliant on how capital markets are going to finance that if part of what you're buying is a big pool of cash. And then from a company's perspective, hey, maybe some of these companies start getting way more aggressive with capital allocation, become the biggest acquirers of their own shares. I know a couple of those that are out there. Um, or do a special dividend, whatever it may be, like your options to optimize your, you know, a McDonald's could only rationalize so much in their business at this point and squeeze out more financially. But some of these compressed EV companies, you know, so long as they're not burning cash every day that they uh, open for business, they have a lot of flexibility and, you know, I'm trying, I, I think those are areas to hunt. So, hey, if you're listening and you know of any companies that fit the bill of what we said, we'd love for you to give us some shout outs. Yeah. And by the way, those those are small caps, right? I mean, you're not going to find a large cap with 80% of its market cap in cash. Uh, so that I think would uh, speak to the, the small cap thesis here. But obviously, it's a very small percentage of the small cap universe. Uh, but just goes to the point that, um, you know, small cap is the place to look if you really want to find idiosyncratic uh, opportunities. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Terrific. Well, another great discussion. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, thank you all for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.